If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We are in Mark chapter 9, over halfway through now with our series in Mark. As we turn to the Lord's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank You, Father, that You have provided Your Word for Your people that we are that enables us to know um, what we are to believe about you and also what duty you ask of your people. Father, would you open our blind eyes to see your beauty? Would you unstop our deaf ears to hear the truth of the gospel? Would you open our closed minds uh, to be able to love you with all of our mind? Would you soften our cold heart and warm our heart that we might receive all that your word has for us this day. Father, be pleased now through your word and spirit to feed your people, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we are on week number 35 in our series, Jesus According to the Bible an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And we began this series, uh, this time last year, looking at the fact that today and in all days, there's widespread ignorance and confusion of who Jesus is. And given our own propensity to create a Jesus in our own image of our own imagination, here we are going to God's Word and let God's Word reveal to us uh, the person and work of Jesus. Well, as seen from the outside, Christianity is narrow. You've heard the accusation. Christians are narrow. They are narrow-minded. You know what? Those accusations are absolutely accurate. Christians are narrow. Christianity versus every other religion Christianity is narrow and is exclusive. Now, how can you say that? Well, what does Peter say in Acts chapter 4? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Well, where did Peter get this idea? Maybe from Jesus himself. For Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it, who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We read in Matthew 7. Well, how about Jesus in his own words from John 14? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, Christianity is narrow because sin, excuse me, because salvation from sin and death is exclusively found in Jesus Christ. Now that's the view from the outside. But you know what? Even from the inside, Christianity can sure seem to be narrow as well. 
You've heard the accusation as well. People in churches like to argue and fight. No one helps. And sadly, that's often the case. It's not a new thing. It's been going on for a long time. Now, do, during the Great Awakening, one of the mighty works of God in reviving His church that took place in the mid-1700s in both America and England, uh, many of you may know that there was a leader, one of the leaders, uh, John Wesley, who ended up founding the Methodist Church, and he emphasized man's free will, that man needed to make a decision. And yet you had another leader, George Whitfield, who emphasized the sovereignty of God in salvation. You had two men who had two different emphasis. Now, during that time, one professor of religion, knowing this sharp theological difference between Wesley and Whitfield, asked Whitfield if he thought he would see John Wesley in heaven. Now, this is one of those gotcha questions, isn't it? He asked Whitfield if he thought he would see John Wesley in heaven. You know how Whitfield responded? Quote, I fear not, end quote, he said. Quote, he will be so near the throne and we at such a distance that we shall hardly get a sight of him. What an attitude of heart. I mean, it was a softball question. No, we're not going to see Wesley in heaven. What a beautiful, kind, gracious attitude of heart. Thinking of the other more highly than himself. He's going to be so close to the throne and we so far away, I probably won't get sight of him. What a response of Christian love and charity. In our text today, we will see Jesus continuing to teach his disciples the new Israel, the church. He teaches in the first century. Jesus, by his spirit, continues to teach in his 21st century. Last week, we looked at the question, who's the greatest? Where the concern was status in the kingdom of God. Today, we're going to look at service in the kingdom of God. Join with me in as I read Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 42. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in, because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This next lesson is needed because the 12 disciples are in need of more instruction, both in attitude and in behavior. Let's look, first of all, at John's comment in verse 38. 
Usually it's been Peter who's the spokesman. Peter's the one who represents all the disciples. And yet here it's John. Because John is another one of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And you see three times in verse 38, he's speaking for all. We saw. We tried. Following us. What's the situation? Well, the disciples have seen someone casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They attempted to stop him. We read, we tried. But we, they were not able to do so. They were ignored, in other words. Evidently, unlike as we saw the disciples in chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, this man was successful in his ministry. Demons don't just respond to mere words, but rather to the power of of God. John's comment here is both a confession and a complaint. It's a confession because for once the disciples feel confident about doing something right. They felt safe to report to Jesus. But there's a surprise, isn't there, in our text. We would expect them we would expect John to have reported uh, that that he was not following you, but we read instead, he was not following us. There's a bit of irony here also in the text. It's striking again because of their own lack of success earlier in casting out demons. Remember Jesus said, this only comes out through prayer, this kind. They failed then because they were not prayerfully depending on Jesus. So they confess to Jesus what had happened, but they also complain. They're complaining because in telling Jesus, they are expecting Jesus to take their side in the dispute. Now, what does this complaint reveal? And by the way, just asking that very question is a great diagnostic question. We've been looking in... um, our youth and adult Sunday school class about the first two commandments, and we've been looking at idolatry, either the worship of a false god or the false worship of the true God. And, and here, underneath the complaint, is an idol. And so asking this very question, what does the complaint reveal, is a great general opening diagnostic question that we could well use for our own complaints. Well, John, speaking for all of the disciples, has a wrong idea about service. His idea of service is one of control and power. Here we have before our eyes an apostolic example of ministerial intolerance and jealousy. My friends, the Gospels, because they are true accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, they report the good, the bad, and the ugly. How could we understand the gospel of grace? How could we understand grace unmeasured? Were it not to see, for instance, in the life of Peter and his transformation. Oh, my friends, be glad that God does not judge us by a snapshot, but it's a moving video picture of of going from where we were to to where we will one day be. Here, 
It's as if they have a complete disregard of the lesson of the preceding story of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. John regards his call as a disciple not as a call of service, but as an entitlement of privilege and status. And to be sure, Christians have an incredible status, forgiven in a right relationship with God. But it's not a worldly status. So how does Jesus respond to this comment, this confession and complaint? Jesus interestingly responds with a command. Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. This, my friends, is not what they expected to hear. There's a parallel between verses 38 and 39, do not stop, do not hinder, and verse 37, which speaks of people who do not receive or welcome. There's a failure to welcome going on here because Jesus speaks in support of the man and in opposition to the disciples. It's important to remember here that the man is not teaching something heretical or unorthodox. Rather, he is doing the work of Jesus. He's casting out demons in a battle against Satan. We, when we uh, did our study in 1 John, you may remember these words in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's part of the mission that Jesus gave his disciples. He sent them out to preach and with the authority to cast out demons, we read in chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus here is opposing the narrow exclusivity of the twelve with an open and generous spirit. This is a golden rule for the church that's issued by Jesus. Jesus, the foundation of the church, the head of the church, the king of his church, All branches of Christ's church are apt to think that no good can be done in this world unless it is done by their own party and denomination. Now, don't get me wrong. Denominations are important. It brings together people of similar and like-minded theological conviction to work together. Denominations right now are just a sad, in one sense, um, fact of of living in a sinful and fallen world where the unity has not yet been fully achieved that Jesus has promised and indeed will achieve. But sometimes men are often narrow-minded and make an idol of their own particular church machinery. Recall our Old Testament and New Testament readings. In Numbers 11, what did... did, uh, Uh, Joshua say to Moses, stop them. My friends, let us not be more restrictive than Moses here. And in Philippians 1, where Paul says, whether for good motives or bad motives, the important thing is Jesus is preached. Let us not be less broad-minded than Paul. Jesus is not a drill sergeant here barking orders to the recruits. But rather, Jesus is a teacher educating his students. And so he goes on to do what good teachers always do. He explains things. 
It would seem to be pretty clear, but then he goes on to support his command by giving three reasons why the disciples should not stop him and others like him. Let's take a look now at Jesus' teaching. And he gives three reasons. Reason number one is found at the end of verse 39. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Reason number one, because he is using my name properly. The reason is so obvious. The language is so clear that little explanation is needed. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we read this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. There's a theological impossibility, Jesus is saying, that no one who does a mighty work in my name will, therefore, in just a little while, be able to turn around and speak evil of me. Jesus wants his disciples to know that ministry that brings glory to the name of Jesus must not be hindered because this ministry, from what we can tell, is focused on Jesus. Someone was succeeding where they had failed. And what is the proper response Jesus is wanting from his disciples? Encourage this man. And there's another reason we see in verse 40. Not only because he is using my name properly, but because he is not against us. For the one, Jesus says, who is not against us is for us. It's a proverb, it's a general truth, but what does this mean? Was Jesus all of a sudden the laissez-faire Jesus, the let live, uh, let it be Jesus? Is that his attitude? Well, the reason he cannot, this man cannot speak evil is he does not think evil as he's ministering in the name of Jesus. We already have seen that neutrality toward Jesus is impossible. Herod attempted it, we read in um, Mark 6, but it's impossible to be neutral toward Jesus. That's why Jesus calls those who follow him to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow. Jesus is saying here, the real issue, John, is not whether this man is in your group, but whether he is for me or against me. That's a great question for all of us to ask. Are we against Christ or are we for Christ? Well, what does it mean to be for Christ? Of course, it means to believe in him, but it's also to treasure Christ. To see that he is as the uh, exact representation, the image of the invisible God. He is the Lord to believe in him, to treasure in him. So not only because this man is using my name properly and because he is not against us, but Jesus goes on in verse 41 to say, because any work in my name deserves to be honored. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Notice Jesus' emphasis. For truly, I say to you, children, when we read Jesus say, truly I say to you, it's as if the highlighter or the bold font gets put in. 
Jesus uses the illustration of a cup of water. And in the ancient Near East, this is hospitality. This is what those cultures were known for. And because you belong to Christ. What a great definition of a Christian. I belong to Jesus, as one of our children's hymns says. Notice here it's service done to the Christian, to those in the church. We are called, of course, to serve those outside the body, but here we are being told to serve inside the body. In other words, John, don't stop him, rather encourage him. One writer has said, quote, the smallest acts of faith and obedience call forth the approval of God. Even the smallest ordinary work, everything done because someone belongs to Jesus, everything done in Jesus' name has eternal significance. Jesus says indeed, by no means lose the reward, his reward. Well, what is that? Well, it's got to be peace of mind now. It's going to be public acknowledgement by Christ at his return and indeed the entrance into an everlasting inheritance. Jesus, after providing three reasons, goes on to conclude with a warning in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now some debate whether verse 42 goes with what precedes it or what follows it. Here I believe it's the final comment in this particular lesson Jesus is giving. Who are these little ones? It's referring to Jesus' followers. Disciples who are little in the ways of the world. Little in the ways that the world counts greatness. And Jesus warns against causing those to sin or to stumble. Jesus is observing that the disciples' desire for self-importance has led them to try to stop the man from doing the work of Christ and therefore to sin. In other words, it's not here a sin of commission, but rather a sin of omission. Jesus is saying to them, if you don't overcome your pride, your party spirit and self-righteousness, you are going to discourage and lead believers to sin. Now, as you all know, we are in a great battle and a great fight, and we have enemies around us and enemies in us that fight against our growth and progress in the faith, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But unfortunately, we have here at times what appears to be a fourth enemy that can lead us to sin. Other Christians, as it were, who discourage and disillusion and tempt others to sin. Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, in using this image of a great millstone hung around neck and thrown into the sea. Jesus takes this incredibly seriously when we out of a party spirit and narrow-mindedness, discourage people from serving Christ who may or may not belong to our particular circle. 
what we see in our text is the disciples' ongoing need for teaching, training, but we see our need as well. Jesus had last week just taught them a lesson in humility. Now he was teaching them a lesson in tolerance. Jesus was challenging their view then and our view now. Jesus' teaching has a way of exposing hearts, doesn't it? And so when our hearts are cut open and are on display, what do we see? Do we see spiritual pride and arrogance? Do we see discouraging rather than encouraging someone in their service to Jesus? Now, my friends, as I was preparing and studying for this, um, I recognized that, you know what? I want Jesus, through his word, to come alongside me and say, good job, keep going. I love you. I'll never fail you. And indeed, we have passage after passage of Jesus doing exactly that. But we also have passages where Jesus goes against us. He cuts our hearts wide open. Do we want a yes man as a savior? Do we want a yes man as a Lord? Or do we want someone who knows who is the truth, who is helping us die to sin and live to righteousness, to put off the old and to put on the new. My friends, Jesus is all for us, for those who place their faith in him. But here, as we see, he has no problem going against us as well in order to change us, in order to take us away from trusting in ourselves, looking in the mirror and admiring us for our great progress. He wants us to look out from ourselves and look to Him. What we see in our text is the title of the sermon, The Wrong Kind of Narrowness. One commentator wrote this, What had concerned Jesus was that John's response to this man had been totally negative because John's chief interest had been his own exclusive relationship to Christ and his commission from him. He had manifested a deep-seated them-and-us mentality because he was anxious to safeguard his own role. His real concern had not been for Christ's honor and kingdom. In other words... He was still about another kingdom, his kingdom. And my friends, that's what we are about until the true king slowly but surely pries us away from the claustrophobic confines of our own kingdom and opens us up to the wide expanse of the kingdom of God. A little over 20 years ago, I was sitting on the front porch of the house where I lived in Norfolk, Virginia, with um, uh, about six to seven other um, believers, all officers in the Navy or Marine Corps. And I remember one of my housemates, we were sitting on the front porch together, and he, who's now been involved in an inner city ministry in Norfolk, Virginia for the last 25 years, he was getting ready to get out of the Navy, and and he said something like to me, he said, You know, Lee, I've been praying for God to bless so-and-so's ministry. And God is blessing 
that ministry, and I'm, I'm jealous, I'm envious. And Greg was very courageous to share that with me, and I had to admit right then and there too, you know, I pray for God to prosper other people. But the real test is this, when God answers your prayer to bless this church, to bless that ministry, to bless this missionary effort, when it happens... Can you rejoice? Can you be genuinely happy? Or all of a sudden, are you like, well, why isn't God doing that for me? This is a test. And Jesus is testing his disciples. Spiritual arrogance and pride blinds us toward other Christians and hence makes it tough if not impossible, for us to recognize Jesus, the Jesus according to the Bible. Well, if there's a wrong kind of narrowness in the church, then there must be the right kind of broadness in the church. Well, what is it and what does it look like? It's a heart attitude of welcoming, charity, and love. Every week I say we are going to gather to worship God and welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Ask yourself, how open is my heart toward others? Is my heart even open toward others? Because the right kind of broadness is reflected in a heart attitude of welcoming, charity, and love. But also... It's a recognition that true discipleship has to do with service, not status. How eager are you to serve others who belong to Christ, even in small, what would seem to be unnoticed and insignificant ways? It's important to remember that what is unnoticed by others is nonetheless seen by God. An act of kindness, a cup of water. God sees, God knows, God rewards. When the world sees the church acting like this, in other words, a church loving one another, it cannot but take notice and maybe even be attractive to something as counter-cultural as looking out for one another. People sacrificing their time for others. People genuinely interested less in themselves and more in others. In other words, my friends, nothing is as countercultural as love and service in any culture. You want to rebel? You want to be a nonconformist? Love and serve those around you. Well, if this is not the present attitude of your heart or the disposition of your mind, do not despair, for there is hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ himself. Earlier, I mentioned that Jesus is exclusive. Salvation is found in no one else, yet Christianity, and we must never forget this, is also inclusive. Jesus welcomes anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. Because you see, Jesus is the one who came not to be served, but to serve. The one who served us by doing something that we could never do. Living the life of perfect obedience to God, 
that God demands of us and then dying the atoning death in our place on our behalf for the rebellious life of disobedience that we do live. My friends, Jesus continues to call people to him and to follow him. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He goes on to say, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the broadness and narrowness of Jesus. We thank you for the inclusivity and exclusivity of the gospel. Father, would you enable us, because we would be so consumed by your kindness in rescuing us from sin and death, that we would be able to extend that kindness to others and that we would rejoice in ministry that is done in the name of Jesus, trusting that you, Father, will slowly but surely align ministries and activities more and more to the truth of your word. Oh, Father, give us a generous spirit toward one another and to others, pointing one another to Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sake, became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich not in the things of this earth but rich in the things that are eternal and that bring glory to you and do good for one another almighty god our heavenly father we thank you for your word may we not be men and women boys and girls who hear your word and then go away forgetting what it says, or forgetting to put it into practice. Have your way with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.